0: Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Uh, Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study again. We ask that your spirit will join us and lighten our minds. Help us put the pieces together to see your universe and your character more clearly. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson 14, if you weren't keeping track, you might have thought we were jumping already to the new one because we did 13 last week, but this one threw us for a curve, it's one of those rare ones with a 14, and uh, so we're doing 14 this quarter, and the lesson, it's still in the book of Job, and the title this week is some lessons from Job, and as you think about the entire book of Job, if you have a, uh, any major lessons that, that are like, if somebody say, okay, in one bullet point. Tell me the 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 big points, the big lesson points in the book of Job, in in, a, in, a, in one in single bullet points. Any anybody? What are the? Job the... Trusted God. Okay, Job trusted God. Okay, other thoughts. His character. Okay. Other thoughts. Any major themes in the book of Job? Be careful of your friends. Okay, I like that one. That's a good one. Yeah. Okay. Don't. Alrighty, just because someone has got good intentions doesn't necessarily mean they're bringing you good information. They can have good good motives and still be a source of misinformation. So you don't surrender your thinking to a friend. Yeah, it's a good one. Or a spouse. Or a spouse. That's true too. How about uh, God is not the source of evil? Did we learn that in the book of Job? God is not the source of evil. How about there's a reality beyond which we can see a dimension with which we are currently out of phase, so to speak. We get that, the the behind-the-scenes reality in the first chapter. Um, How about there's actually a real intelligent being who is consumed completely with selfishness, works against us? How about that bad things can happen to good people through no choice or wrong action on, on their part? Did we learn that? That uh, people with good intentions can be the voice of the evil one. Did we learn that? Yeah. That sometimes the circumstances we are in don't make sense to our current level of understanding, yet God is still good and is worthy of our trust. Even though we can't understand, why. Wow, what's going on here? We're confused. Be very similar to a child getting their vaccines And the parent is there, why why are you letting them jab me with a needle? Come on. For the child's perspective, that makes no sense at all. Okay? Yeah, finally understood. Right, Lynn? Job tells us that God is love. It's correct. That we have genuine freedom, and God doesn't use his power to control his intelligent creatures like puppets. We learn that in the book of Job. The way the world currently operates is out of harmony with God's design. In other words, we can't look into nature, as Job tried to do, and see where the strong prey on the weak, the innocents are slaughtered all the time, and therefore conclude this is God's intention, this is God's design, this is how God created or constructed it to work. It's not. God challenged Job with that and said, hey, were you there when the foundations were laid? You didn't see it as it came from my hand. What you're seeing in nature is because of an infection to in my creation. This is not how I designed it to go. Second paragraph in Sabbath lesson, it says, We have no reason to doubt God's word because we cannot understand the mysteries of his providence. In the natural world we are constantly surrounded with wonders beyond our comprehension. Should we then be surprised to find the spiritual world also in the spiritual world also mysteries that we cannot fathom? The difficulty lies solely in the weakness and narrowness of the human mind. What do you hear this saying? That just because we can't currently understand something doesn't mean God is not does not exist, or that God is not good, or that God cannot be trusted. We're finite and God is infinite. We're finite and God's infinite. The problems in our limited awareness of all the facts and all the variables involved, that's the problem if we get confused and don't understand something. But is this paragraph saying that because we are finite, because God is infinite, because there's information beyond our, our understanding, that we should not try to comprehend, that we should not pursue truth, we shouldn't try to understand? Is that what the paragraph is saying? No, we should try. We should always be growing, always advancing, always be seeking to understand greater depths of reality. That's what God invited us to do. Sunday's lesson points us to Second Corinthians five seven, which says, "We live by faith, not by sight." And Second Corinthians four eighteen, which says, "So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what, what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal." What do these passages mean? What does it mean to live by faith and not by sight? Does it mean, as it's often taught, believing without evidence? Is that what it means? Because this is very common. I can't tell you, both in the, the critics of religion, when I talk to evolutionary scientists and I start talking about evidence, they go, but you're talking about religion, and religion is based on faith, and faith is when you believe without evidence. And they get really concerned that I'm talking about evidence in religious concern. And then many of the religious people I talk to, when I talk about looking for evidence, they go, well, we believe in faith, and and with faith we don't need evidence. I get this all the time, from both sides. This quote was in one of the lesson guides a few years back. See if you remember this one, and see if this is an accurate or misunderstood application of what faith is. There is always a need for faith, which is belief in something we don't totally see or understand. If we could totally see or understand it, then there would be no room for faith. We don't need faith to believe that the sky is over our heads. We can look up and see it. Faith is needed instead to believe in the God who lives beyond the sky because we can't see him. Accurate, or something's misunderstood here and misconstrued. If you think this is the correct understanding, that's right, that's right, that's faith, yeah, I believe, then when Jesus appears and you meet him face to face, do you say to him, Jesus, I used to have faith in you, but now that I've met you, I don't have faith in you anymore. If that's the right definition, do you see that? That doesn't work, does it? Or when you meet him face to face and experience him more closely than you've ever been able to experience him here, does your faith in him increase? you have more faith now? What's your new faith based on? When Jesus said to Doubting Thomas, put your hand in my side and in my wound, stop doubting and believe or have faith based on what? Something he couldn't see or something he could see? he could see? Yeah, this this is messed up. This is not real faith. This is the distortion that leads many people to believe things that make no sense at all. Today's lesson, I think, actually does a much better job of describing it. And so if we read in the... Uh, First paragraph, it says, the immediate context of 2 Corinthians 4.18 is eschatological, talking about the end times, when we are clothed in immortality, a great promise that we don't yet see fulfilled. That's a promise we have to take on faith and not by sight because it hasn't come to pass yet. How is this description different than the one about the sky over our head? What's different about the two? Why is this one actually a very appropriate description of faith, and the other one was a miss? Because this hasn't happened yet. Okay. It's okay. Okay. Because it's, it's something that hasn't happened. Anything else? What is our faith in this one about? Is our faith in is our faith in this paragraph describing? We have faith in immortality. We have faith in eternal life. Is that what it's saying? We have faith in? You make it too hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's very straightforward. It's not that hard. Our faith is in the one who made the promise of immortality. Our faith is not in immortality. Our faith is not in internal life. Our faith is in the one who said we would receive immortality. Right. No, okay. Not in the immortality. So while we have no evidence of eternal life or immortality it hasn't happened yet... Do we have evidence of both God's existence and his reliability and trustworthiness? So our faith is in him that what he says will come true. That's what it means. But our faith in him is based on evidence not of a future promise. We don't have evidence of mansions in heaven, eternal life, the earth made new. We don't have evidence because that hasn't happened yet. But we have evidence that everything God has told us uh, and everything he's read about himself convinces us that he is trustworthy and reliable and he doesn't say things that won't come true. So our faith is in him, not simply in some evidence of an outcome. That's the difference. And so God has given us abundant evidence of his existence and trustworthiness. Yes, somebody online? Can we therefore take by faith that we can predict the exact sequence of in-time events? Um. If God had given you a direct revelation from him of that direct, exact sequence, that hasn't been given, though. But if God were to come and, uh, and say, here is the exact sequence of how things are going to happen, then you could have confidence in God that what he tells us is true. But the exact sequence of events, how things will unfold, has not been given. There are many interpretations that people take based on symbolic writings, The the Daniel revelation, for instance, which are very symbolic. And people interpret them to mean certain things and then draw certain conclusions and put them in certain orders and predict what's going to happen in this way. And they come up with their charts and stuff and and they think that's a revelation from God. Those charts are not a revelation from God. So the exact sequence we don't have, do we? No, Well, that I are the big thing they built, the image. Everything's happened according to that. The countries. Yes, yes, yes. Those, Those historical ones we can look back on and see that they... And this is the the purpose of Bible prophecy, as I understand it. The primary purpose of Bible prophecy is not for us to be able to prognosticate the future and build a timeline so that we can say, okay, on January 3, 2023, this event's going to happen. Be prepared and be ready. That's not the purpose of Bible prophecy. The purpose of Bible prophecy is what you just said, that we can now, living today, look back in history and see history has unfolded exactly as God foreknew Thus, it is not taking God by surprise, so our confidence in God, our faith in him is strengthened, not for our ability to make a chart for predict future events. Yes? I may be paraphrasing this wrong, but didn't Ellen White put a nice quote together that said something along the lines of, we have nothing to fear for the future except where we forget where God has led us in the past. Exactly, that's what it says, yeah. That's exactly right. And that's the purpose, the primary purpose of the prophecy, to prepare us in a general way to have confidence when things come. He told his disciples these, these are things that are going to come with Jerusalem, and he gave some general things, but he didn't give specifics. You know, he didn't give the name of the particular general who was going to come in, how many troops were going to arrive, what day they were going to come on, uh, what, the, what, what priest was going to lead this group in rebellion against that. I mean, all the details were not given. Because if we had the details, that would... I mean, think of it. He tells us when we come before the the magistrates and stuff, we're not to have the words prepared and such. That that would be predestined or something in such a way where it would be confusing to us. And often people would wait to the last minute to prepare, to get ready. So, our question about our belief in God, our faith in God, is it based on evidence or is it based on declaration? He declares that we should believe, or does he reveal evidence? of his existence, and his trustworthiness. And what are the three primary threads of evidence he's provided? Remember the three primary threads? Scripture, all scriptures God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness. Science, nature, God's divine nature has been revealed in what he has made so that men are without excuse, Romans 1.20. And experience, taste and see that the Lord is good, or the example from Jesus and Thomas, our actual life experiences. Are we comfortable because we can look in Scripture and see those three threads taught in Scripture, and we can conclude that yes, we shouldn't base our beliefs solely and exclusively on Scripture that contradicts how life works and science and nature? Or are we getting comfortable with that? Because there's a whole school of theologians that actually teach no, we should exclude experience and we should exclude, or do we harmonize, make our understanding of Scripture harmonize with? God's design laws, how he's constructed his his creation to work. Are we comfortable coming to that conclusion on our own? Do we need an Ellen White quote? (laughs) (laughs) Well, education, page 77. Jesus followed the divine plan of education. His education was gained directly from the heaven-appointed sources, from useful work, from the study of scriptures and of nature, and from the experiences of life, God's lesson books. And I, what, I, what I find it interesting, and I, I don't know if you all know this, we in our class and our study actually came together and you know the Venn diagram we have out there on the, on the flyers out there, and we came up with the integrative approach, and afterwards we, we came across these quotes. So we didn't build that because we had these quotes. Yeah. Except that sometimes scripture doesn't go along with the nature that we know. For example, Jesus being born out of a virgin... Or Jesus walking on the water. (laughs) Okay, so I don't actually have a problem with that. Because, well, let's see if that doesn't unfold in our next couple of paragraphs. There are still some undiscovered uh, or unrevealed laws and principles that are going to be discovered as time goes on. Just because the rules or the principles don't exist doesn't mean that, they're not no, no. Uh, th- you remember um, Newton's laws of motion? Okay. When Newton wrote his laws of motion, did they go into existence the day he wrote them, <laughs> <laughs> or they were already in existence but nobody knew about them until he actually described them? And when Jesus walks on the water, there are laws that we don't currently comprehend, like Newton's laws of physics and motion that he described, um, that are involved in that process. We just simply don't understand them yet. And God is creator, the source of life. I have no problem with the creator coming down and impregnating a woman. That's another living being. We see living beings causing pregnancies all the time. And certainly if God could create life out of dirt, he could. he could provide genetic material to cause a pregnancy to form and marry. That, that's not beyond our comprehension because we can do that today ourselves. We can take women who have never had sexual relationships and we can impregnate them. And we can even do that without the the help of a man. We can do that now by taking skin cells of a woman and we can um, regress those skin cells back to progenitor cells and we can then clone those cells and cause a pregnancy, a clone pregnancy of the woman. We can do that. So if we can do that, I don't have a real problem with God impregnating Mary in the Incarnation. So, But your point, I think, though, is well, th- those two examples I don't have a problem with, but your point is well taken, that there are, there are things in all the different threads where we don't have evidence from Scripture in everything. For instance, can you find evidence in Scripture for calculus and that the rules of calculus should apply? Not really. You won't find any calculus in Scripture. It's not its purpose. Uh, you will find things talked about in Scripture that we don't necessarily have science for, like the, uh, the meeting with the, the intelligent beings that Job, in the first chapter of Job in heaven. We don't have science that we can actually show that to be true. So there are aspects of each thread that necessary, that may not actually have a, an evidentiary thread from the other two but wherever the evidences are evidence in all three we want to harmonize those okay? so what do you say to those who report it is illogical to believe in God because we cannot see him what can you say that, that puts this argument the idea that well you can't see God and if you can't see him then you shouldn't believe in him um, because it doesn't make sense to believe in things you can't see can't see the wind but we see the results of it Okay, but, they, but you can't see it, but you can feel it. Well, yeah, but I mean... You can't see it pretty... Okay, I like where you're going with that. It's a, it's a oh, oh. subatomic particle. S- subatomic oh. particle. A what? A, sub- <laughs> a particle from which atoms themselves are made. Oh. Subatomic, below the, below the size of an atom. That's way up. So here's an interesting example given by a pastor, and it's in our lesson. They quote, these two paragraphs come from our lesson. On the Sunday's lesson, it says, A preacher stood before the church in a large city. He asked the congregation to be quiet. For a few seconds, there was no sound. Then he pulled out a radio and turned it on, running the dial across the various channels. All sorts of sounds came out of the radio. Let me ask, the preacher said, where did these sounds come from? Did they originate in the radio itself? No, these sounds were in the air all around us as radio waves, waves we just just as real as my voice is now, but the way we are wired, we don't have access to them. Uh, but the fact that we can can 't see or feel or hear them doesn't mean they don't exist, and so I thought it was a pretty good analogy okay pardon yeah, very good analogy, very good description there 's something around us all the time we can 't see we can 't touch we can't smell we can't we can 't sense in any way, but it 's real. Radio waves is an example, other examples like that how about ultraviolet light, infrared light beyond our ability to personally sense. Sounds beyond our ability to hear. You know, dogs can hear frequencies you can't hear. And smells. You know, dogs can smell. Do you know dogs, they they estimate, can smell 10,000 to 100,000 times more sensitive than the human can? And if you just take the low end of that spectrum 10,000 times and translate that into vision, at the 10,000, not the 100,000, just the 10,000 times better level, we can see about a third of a mile, which means a dog can see 3,000 miles. Get your mind. It can see from New York to Los Angeles. Clearly. If it was smell translated to sight, that's how much better their smell is than ours. You appreciate that? See, dogs can sense up to one part per trillion in something. If you put a teaspoon of sugar in a cup of coffee, you could tell that there's sugar in your coffee. One cup. You take that same teaspoon, and a dog can sense that sugar in one million gallons of water. That's how so much more sensitive. Does that mean so? You taste the water, there's no sugar in this. Does that mean there's no sugar in it because you can't sense it? There are reports of dogs finding 35 pounds of marijuana packed in plastic submerged in gasoline inside a gas tank, and they could still smell the marijuana through the gas, through the plastic. Incredible. Does that mean because we can't sense it, it's not there? Those, those um, chemicals being released by the marijuana floating through the air, through the gasoline... We're, we're still enough that the dogs could pick it up, but but does that mean it's not real? Because we can't. How about radiation? Gravity. Nuclear forces. The forces that hold the, the the atoms together. Are there spiritual lessons we can learn from all of this? Yeah. I think even more so the things you don't see because of 2 Corinthians 4.18. says the things that are seen are temporary or temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Exactly. Exactly. Um, So why should we believe that life is intelligently designed rather than just randomly coming to be on its own? Last week I mentioned the difference between origin science, how things came to be the origination of matter and life and so forth, versus evolutionary science, how things adapt and change over time based on environmental pressures. The problem with the godless evolutionary science which is taught worldwide in most schools, is that you cannot start evolving until you first have an origin. You have to exist before you can evolve. And all origin science confirms creation by intelligent design and refutes evolutionary origins. that's why they don't like to talk about origin science. Because if you look at the big premises upon which evolutionary godless science rests, and the premises upon which creation rests, you will discover that they all support creation and refute godless origins. <laughs> now, when you think about scientific evidence, what is a scientific evidence? Scientific evidence is something that is testable and reproducible, and you can, you can test it, and it just gets the same results over and over again, and it's provable. That's what science is, basically, very simplistically put. We cannot, in either theory, godless evolutionary origins or special creation, go back and actually test the moment in which the universe was created. That is beyond our ability to test in a lab. So we have to look at the premises upon which those rest and, and see if those are testable and which they support. And so here are the premises. Evolution, there was nothing of any, any kind, nothing. And from nothing came something. Creation, there was already something and from something came something. From evolution, order came from disorder or chaos on its own with no intelligent input. This idea actually violates the second law of thermodynamics, and all scientific experiments that we do today on Earth disprove this theory. Creation order comes from disorder with intelligent input. This idea is in harmony with the second law of thermodynamics, and it is proven in everybody's life experience every day. Third premise. Evo- evolution premise? Life came from non-living matter on its own, spontaneously. Was was at some point in the past called spontaneous generation, and this was disproven scientifically, and so they renamed it to abiogenesis. Doesn't that sound much more scientific? It's abi- abiogenesis. Okay? Which also has no evidence in science, and science proves it's not true. Creation, though, has the principle that living matter came from living matter, which this entire planet, every day demonstrates to be true. Further problems of the godless view of origins, as described in Nancy Piercy's book, and I brought the book to show you Finding Truth, I recommend this book. Great read, easy read, a lot of really good philosophical and evidence-based arguments for the existence of God, and I want to thank um, Marilyn Holm, who gifted me this book, one of our online listeners. And she writes, The origin of the universe has given rise to the puzzle known as the fine-tuning problem. The fundamental physical constants of the universe are exquisitely balanced, as though on a nice edge to sustain life. Things like the force of gravity... The strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the electromagnetic force, the ratio of the mass of a proton and electron, the, and many other factors have just the right value needed to make life possible. If any of these critical numbers were changed even slightly, the universe could not sustain any form of life. For example, if the strength of gravity were smaller or larger, then its current value by only one part in 10 to the 60th. That's a one with 60 zeros behind it. If it changed, gravity changed by that little, one part in 10 to the 60th, which we can't even get our minds around, the universe would be uninhabitable. This is why God said in Matthew, Christ said in Matthew, you think I've come to change the law? No, I haven't come to change the law. I've come to live in harmony and fulfill it. Uh, Not one jot or tittle, nothing in the law could change and everything wouldn't exist. She goes on to write, What makes the fine-tuning problem so puzzling is that there is no physical cause to explain it. Nothing in all physics explains why its fundamental principles should conform themselves so precisely to life's requirements, says astronomer George Greenstein. Why do you think chemists have never been able to create life in a lab? Piercy quotes physicist Paul Davies, who says, The central role of information explains why scientists have failed to cook up life in the chemistry lab. Chemistry is about substances and how they react, whereas biology appeals to the concepts such as information, which is clearly not chemical. Genetic information can be described only by using terminology borrowed from the mental world of language and communication. DNA is a genetic database containing instructions on how to build an organism the genetic code has to be transcribed and translated before it can act this is not simple chemical you have to have information encoded in the sequence of how those various molecules are organized it would be no different than our alphabet Okay, look at our alphabet and taking a like children's blocks that have alphabets on them, the, the, the alphabet letters of the alphabet on them, and you take those blocks and you just jumble them up in a bag and you expect that they're going to come out writing the uh the 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 uh, encyclopedia in proper order. Because the encyclopedia has significantly less information in it than your chromosomes do. Do you see how foolish that idea is? Chemistry, molecules, and so we'll, we'll keep going on. Biologists' uh, favorite, biologists' favorite analogy for DNA is a computer. The molecule itself, the physical change of chemicals, is like the hardware, the machine. The DNA, the, the encoded information, how they're organized, is the software. In the origin of life research, the focus in other words, these evolutionary biologists don't believe in God and are looking in the lab to do lab experiments to try to prove that DNA could have come all on its own with, with sparks and this and that if you've got the right chemical swoop together. It's focusing exclusively on the hardware, simply having the chemicals interact to produce the molecules that make up DNA. Attempts at chemical synthesis focus exclusively on the hardware, the chemical substrate of life. Davies writes, they ignore the software, the information aspect. Yet any 12-year-old kid with a laptop knows that building an electronic device out of copper, plastic, and silicone has nothing to do with writing the code to create the software program. The surprising implication is that even if scientists succeeded in coaxing all the right chemicals to link up and form DNA molecules in a test tube, that would do nothing to explain where the encoded genetic information came from. You all with me on this? Okay? It would be like if scientists got together and somehow created an atmosphere with wind and and sand so that they blew together enough that pieces of wood shaped themselves into the letters of the alphabet. Okay, this is an analogy for what they're saying. Chemicals got together and formed DNA molecules, letters of the alphabet. It would still, even if they had, okay, we get the enough wind speed and shear forces and the right friction from sand and other molecules hitting at the right angles. Look, these molecules, there's an A, there's a B, there's a D. We got all these molecules, all these letters together that still doesn't explain how all those letters came to be in the encyclopedia in the right order to make sense. And so even if they get DNA molecules to form in a a molecular, a chemical experiment, that has no bearing on how they got put together in an order that has all the information that creates you. You follow that. And And there's no natural explanation for that. None. Zero. Further, even if the scientists, the level of denial within science, you talk about faith without evidence, blind faith, it is unbelievable the level of denial among the godless. It's a religion. There's no question. Because even if they should coax the chemicals to come together and form DNA, you understand that that, in their experiment, was done with intelligent input. They created this atmosphere, the conditions, the chemicals, the electrical, they brought it all together so that it could do that. It didn't happen spontaneously on its own like they claim it did historically. So even their basic building block ideas are are contradictory to the way they say it happened. Further, there are other lines of reason to support intelligent design to be much more reasonable than a godless origin. First, the principle of cause and effect. In order for an effect to occur, the cause has to be capable of producing the effect. Think that through. Does that make sense to everybody? The, whatever the or, or, original cause is, in order for an effect to happen, that cause has to be capable of producing it. Okay? For instance, in order for, you to, for a child to be born, cause and effect, okay, those who are bringing forth the child have to have the ability to cause that outcome. They can't be sterile. Or you can't put two rocks together in a box, shake them up, and have a child born. Because two rocks aren't capable. They can't bring that effect about. Everybody with me now? Okay. So, with that in mind, Piercey puts it like this. Um, because humans are capable of knowing, we are capable of knowing, understanding, the first cause that produced them must have a mind. Because humans are capable of choosing. The first cause must have a will. And so on. Philosopher Etienne Gilson captures the argument neatly. Because a human is someone and not a something, the source of human life must also be a someone. Materialism cannot explain consciousness. There is nothing in science that has ever come up with a theory, not even a theory for the existence of human consciousness. Philosopher Evan fails, and these people are evolutionary scientists who recognize that they have no explanation for it, but they continue to believe in their evolutionism. Calls it a mystery. Darwin, Darwinian evolution implies that humans emerge through the blind operations of natural forces. It is mysterious how such forces could generate something non physical, like the human consciousness. It's not physical philosopher Colin McGinn treats it akin to a miracle again an evolutionary thinking person but he says this we do not know how consciousness might have arisen by natural processes from antecedently existing materials in other materials that already are in existence that have no consciousness how could that lead to consciousness we have no idea so notice what he said we are tempted it's like it's a temptation Don't sin and go this way. We are tempted, however, reluctantly to turn to divine assistance. (laughs) The the people who are honest at heart with the evidence realize that they can never come up with a godless explanation for the complexity of life on earth, our, our consciousness. So we come to the deep denial the deep denial found in the evolutionary biologists that deny God. It's so deep, and they're so blind to it, they get angry and agitated and, and start protesting people who want to put forth design science. And this is, um, in the words of philosopher Galen Strawson, the denial of consciousness is surely the strangest thing that has ever happened in the whole history of human thought. Think that through. The fact that you're thinking means you've got consciousness, yet you're denying it's... Uh, okay. It shows that the power of human credulity, credulity meaning the ability to believe without evidence. Blind, remember we talked the, the, the ability to believe. The, the power of human credulity is unlimited. That capacity of human minds to be gripped by theory, by faith, is truly unbounded. It reveals the deepest irrationality of the human mind. And what he's saying is doing that? Believing in a godless origin is doing that. Okay? When we speak of evolution, so this is origin science. Origin science, if you're really a scientist, you have to come back and say origin science, all the things we can test, all the things we can produce, all the evidence that we have clearly speaks to an intelligent designer who is involved in, in creation on planet Earth. When we speak of evolution, which is the adaptation, really, the adaptation, how things evolve or change over time. The Bible actually teaches right in the very beginning, this was part of how God designed things. Adam and Eve were told they were going to have children in their image. As they learned, changed, transformed, matured, they would change themselves and they would then pass changes on to their kids. We see this in Genesis. We see it in the commandment. What does the one commandment say about three and four generations? Things passed down, three and four generations. That's what it says. We see it in the Psalms, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We are created, designed, constructed with the ability to learn, adapt, change, and pass those changes on to the next generation. This is epigenetic Modification It is not mutation of the DNA sequence. It is a set of instructions that sit above your genome, telling the genes which ones to turn on and which ones to turn off, and we pass those series of instructions along to our kids, modifying and changing. Darwin made lots of observations. He was a good observer of nature. He just, just, having unmoored himself, I'm talking about the integrative evidence-based approach, he was using science and nature decoupled from its moorings in Scripture. Many theolo- and, he, and, he's, and he got this theory that is just completely inconsistent with reality. Many theologians do the same thing when you use Scripture decoupled from its moorings in science and nature. And they get theories about God and everything else that are just as irrational as what Darwin teaches. But Darwin, one of his, but he was a good observer. He observed things. And, and one of the things he observed, the famous finches. He observed these finches, and these finches had all different beaks. Some, some of these finches had beaks that were very much designed for, for getting, you know, worms and grubs out of the dirt. Others were designed for crushing seeds. Others were designed for, for getting, uh, pollen or so, so forth. In other words, all these different shaped beaks. And he hypothesized that this was random mutations happening over millions of years with biological pressures where they would adapt to different environments. Those who had the beak shapes would reproduce, and those who didn't have those beak shapes wouldn't reproduce. And over the course of time, these changes happened because of environmental pressures and the necessity for this. What's interesting is today with genetic science, they've actually examined those very finches and looked at the DNA sequences, and their DNA sequences are the same. And all the different, all those, that, those, those ones that he observed, not all finches of the world, but in that group of finches that had these different beaks, their DNA sequences are the same. What was different is the epigenetic instructions sitting above the DNA. And in this research, they showed that they could make those beak changes happen in one to two generations. Epigenetic, epi- epigenetic modification. And I've got the uh, reference for that science in the notes for those who want to read that science. So had Darwin, he observed, and I got a hypothesis, nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong with a hypothesis, but maybe this happened. He just didn't have the tools, the scientific resources to go into a lab, take some DNA samples, check it out and see if that was true or not. So he couldn't test his theory. By the time science technology is caught up to where we can actually test the theory, see, Darwin's original theory has proven false. Millions of years of adaptation did not cause these beaks to change, which is what evolutionary science teaches. It happened in one to two generations, which is what scripture teaches happens. Sins passed down three and four generations based on the experience that we're going through in life. So had Darwin had the benefit of science as a honest scientist, he would have modified his theory and come back and said no. But by the time he put his theory forth, It has taken root. It's spread across the world. Books and articles and journal articles and thousands and thousands of publications have happened. Uh, Generation after generation has been taught this is the way it is, and now we have an entire religion, entire belief system based on this idea, which is not even rooted in science. Other epigenetic changes happening. If your mother drank alcohol while she was pregnant with you, you will have an epigenetic change, not a, not a mutation of your DNA, an epigenetic change that for the genes that control taste so that if you ever do taste alcohol, alcohol will taste better to you than had your mother not drank alcohol while she was pregnant with you. There's lots of epigenetics. I have a whole lecture on epigenetics. I think it's in the uh, gray series out there on the developing brain. I go through all the epigenetic stuff, so I'm not going to go through that now. So, for those who don't believe in God, what if we just rephrase Genesis 1 1, which says this In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we rephrase it to say this Earth began when an extraterrestrial intelligence came and terraformed it, establishing a viable atmosphere and stable planet. I'm going to say that again so you can actually think through what I just said. Earth began when an extraterrestrial, meaning non-Earth-based or originating on Earth life form, came and terraformed, making habitable, terraformed it, establishing a viable atmosphere and a stable planet. Does anything I just say there contradict with Genesis (laughs) 1-1? No. And you know, a lot of scientists will go, okay, that's plausible. (laughs) That's very plausible. (laughs) In fact, there are actually scientific theories that don't believe in God that actually teach extraterrestrial life came here and created life on the terraformed it and seeded life on this planet. That's Genesis 1 1. That's intelligent design. Go to any theater and you'll see a movie similar to that. Uh, the script of a movie. I mean, it's, it's very common. Yep. Yep. Are you comfortable with that language of Genesis 1 1? Does that make you uncomfortable? Oh, that's a little creepy. <laughs> Do you know God is an extraterrestrial? God did not originate on Earth. ET. <laughs> so why is it so many prefer? If all this is so strong, and it really evidence, and I just scratched the surface. I tell you, get the book, man. This book is a great book philosophically. It shows a lot of uh, a lot of. Uh, it, it really makes it easy to see the errors in many of these humanistic theories. It's, it's well done. But if the evidence is so strong for creation. Why do so many intelligent and often good-hearted people, not not people who have evil to do harm in their heart, good-hearted people prefer the illogical, evidence-denying ideas that there is no God and the universe came into being by itself, ordered itself, and generated life all by itself without any intelligent input? Why why do they prefer that? It It implies action. I'm going to suggest the primary reason is that the alternative view that has been brought down through human history has been much worse than that view. That's right. And the alternative view brought down through history is that God functions like Satan describes him, a powerful dictator who basically says... Love me, or I will torture you in hell forever. And he's got this very penal, legal approach to governing his universe, like a dictator runs Rome. And you see the uh, terrible abuses in human history done in the name of this God, from the Inquisition to the uh, to the uh, burning people at the stakes, to the Crusades, to the to the bowling up buildings and names of your God. All these horrible human abuses happening in the name of Christianity and other religions. That thinking people go. I would rather believe in no God than in a universe run by a God like that. And I think this is the reason why we have this, because we have not, as Christians, gone out and said to these good-hearted, thinking people who have rejected this distorted, gross view of God, and the only thing having rejected, that's, that's the only view they know, they come up with this godless worldview. We haven't gone out and shared with them a beautiful picture of God that we now know. That God is the creator, the designer, whose laws are the protocols upon which reality function, and that and then when you deviate from those laws, it's destructive to you. And he's been working constantly for our good, our health, our welfare, only to heal and restore, and he leaves you completely free. And if you don't want restoration with him, he won't be angry at you. He'll be brokenhearted, but you'll suffer. You'll die, not because he inflicts it, but because you're breaking the very design protocols upon which life is built. And we have a much better view. And we're called to take this view forward. There's only a few of us that have this view. Yeah, I know, but we but it's spreading, guys. I don't bring it in here very often. We get emails all the time. Francesca working for our ministry now. Don't we get emails? You get some conversations from all the world of people. Just so the stories they're telling about how this ministry is impacting their local congregation, their local church uh, lives around them. So it, it's spreading. It's really going. More. Monday's lesson, and I wanted to get to this part. This is this is the second big theme for the lesson this week. It says evil is sometimes put into too broad. Classes, natural and moral. Natural evil is defined as the kind that arises from natural disasters, such as when earthquakes or floods or pestilences bring suffering. Moral evil results from deliberate actions of other human beings, such as murder and robbery. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to take issue with this. And we're going to pick this apart right now. For me, evil requires volition, intention, choice. Thus inanimate nature is not capable of evil evil requires the choice to reject the good and choose the evil so let's look at this for instance is water evil is water evil what if water is used to drown someone now is water evil what if water was was uh what if if the water was involved in a flood is the water now evil is the flood evil What if the flood was due to a broken dam that broke simply because of age? It was an earthen dam and it it wore down over the years and it broke. Was the dam evil? Was the water evil? What were the people who built the dam? Was it evil to build the dam? Some evil people could have built it. But was it evil to build it? (laughs) What if the flood was due to heavy rains? Are the rains evil? If the dam was built in... Fraudulently. That's what I mean. Evil people could have built it. <laughs> is the dam evil? No. <laughs> Even if the dam was built fraudulently with, with sub, substandard materials, is the dam evil? I think so. No. No. The people that built it are evil. The it, are evil. <laughs> 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 it, it depends upon your definition of evil. Okay. I think you're working on a different definition than what some of the definitions in the dictionary are. What are the definitions in the dictionary? Is a, well, he'll take it. See, I, my, my view is evil requires intention. That's my view. Now, things can be used for evil. Let's keep going with this while you're looking that up. What if the heavy rains flooded an area because of development of the area, cutting out the trees and so forth, and, and on a floodplain, and building on a... It, it, was it evil to develop the area? Or foolish? Is there a difference between evil and foolishness? Or ignorance? Could someone perpetrate evil by using water, drowning someone on purpose, blowing up a dam? Is the water evil? Is the dam evil that got blown up? Are the explosives evil? No. Is the flood which occurred because the dam was blown up evil? What was evil? The person doing it. The choice of the deviant to deviate from love and act selfishly. What about pestilence? Is bacteria evil? Or a result of evil in the world. Yes. Yes. You have a definition. Yes. Go ahead. One morally wrong or bad. Two harmful or injurious. Three characterized or accompanied by misfortune or suffering, unfortunate, disastrous disasters due to actual or imputed bad conduct or character. It goes to your point. Okay. Or marked by anger, irritability, etc. Goes to the point. But there are definitions of evil. doesn't Doesn't make them correct. (laughs) It doesn't. Guys, come on. This is where you have to reason through. Just because something has a certain definition in a dictionary doesn't mean it's true. Um, Let's keep going. Let me give you more examples. Let me give you more examples. (laughs) things are used. Exactly. Exactly. What about a knife? Is a knife evil? How about if a knife is used to perform life-saving surgeries? Is the knife evil? How about if that same knife is used to murder somebody? Is the knife evil? No. Nope. But, but the knife brought pain and suffering, so the knife is evil. It's an evil knife. But it couldn't have done it by itself. Ah, oh, that's the point. Same thing with storms and floods. So this type of thinking, based on those definitions, and I'm going to tell you why they're wrong, is what leads to superstition. Black cats are evil. Guns are evil, we need to ban them. <laughs> Guns are evil, then we need to ban them. Black cats, or carved images, uh, runes are evil. Um, uh, statues are evil. Uh, pentagrams and goat's heads are evil. Rabbit's feet, though, however, are good luck. Crosses bring protection. They put a Bible in the hood, of you, on the dash of your car. You can't get in a wreck. <laughs> I've had people believe that. They put a Bible in the dash. And they always travel with the Bible because they can't get in a wreck. Statue of the saint. The statue of the saint hanging on the thing. See, this type of idea that inanimate objects can be evil or good leads to superstitious thinking. This is idol worship. That's what it is. This is veneration of the, um, uh, the objects, what do they call those? In? Iconography. I- icons, that's right. This is iconography. And it dumbs down the human intelligence. And the Bible completely destroys this idea we know that an idol is nothing but wood and silver and gold. It has no power; can't do anything. Okay, there are several hands now. Yeah, several hands up. Saul. The best yes. definition I found here is definition number one: intending to harm fits what you're talking about. So last week I mentioned this. I'll mention it again. There's actually been research looking at every—I don't—I don't want to say every, but most cultures in the world that have been looked at. Cultures in the world go to different cultures all over the world and ask them to define evil. When people on the street define evil, it always has one common underlying theme in every society of the world. And it's what you said. It is somehow intending to do harm or injury to another living being, to exploit, to take advantage, to cheat, to injure, to hurt. To, to, it's always primarily against humans, but sometimes against animals, other living beings, because you can do evil against animals, can't you? Yeah, okay. And evil in every society of the world comes down to that. But then again, still, it's not the item, it's the person. So let's give some more examples why it's not simply causing pain or suffering. Let's, let's give some examples why it's not simply causing pain or suffering. Has anybody ever heard of a case where somebody died because of taking an antibiotic? Mm-hmm. They had an allergic reaction and died. hmm are antibiotics evil? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. And I could go on all day, mm-hmm. all day long. It's cause pain and suffering, but it's hey, hey. <laughs> Wait a but you see it's the in point. It's short term, and it's for it's for a greater good. Okay, when you when you drill into a bone to put a plate on a fractured fibula. It it hurts. It causes pain and suffering. So do physical therapists. That's right. So do we. (laughs) Has Has anybody (laughs) has anybody heard of someone experiencing pain or suffering because of an innocent, non intentional, non negligent automobile accident? Yes. Yes. Our automobiles evil. I go on all day. Those definitions are wrong, and this is where we have to come and reason, think things out. And we want to disabuse people of superstitious thinking. If you don't get past this, then you got a wreck in a certain car? Those cars are evil. I have to get a different car next time because those are evil Corvairs. Corvairs. <laughs> Pacers. <laughs> yes. So the doctor coaxed me into getting a flu shot. A week later, I got sick and missed a day of work. Was the doctor evil? <laughs> Interesting question. Uh, I would ask you, I would ask the person who wrote that why you gave in to coercion. Why didn't you use your own intelligence, your own individuality, weigh the issues, come to your own conclusion, and make your own decision. Doctors, you know, I think coercion's pretty strong. Coercion means that he had some threat over you. If you don't get this flu shot, I'm gonna tell your wife you've been cheating on on on, on her. If you don't get this flu shot, I'm going to ruin I'm gonna I'm gonna ruin your 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 bank account. I'm gonna bankrupt you. Coercion is actually some threat of punishment coming at you. We do now, though, nurses are being forced to take a blue shot now. By, by employers? At yes. risk of losing it. Your- okay, employers, but that's different than your doctor. That's different than your doctor. When I was in the military, I was coerced. I, was, I don't know if it's coerced is the right word. I just was ordered to. Okay? I was ordered to take a whole bunch of vaccines when I was in the military, a whole bunch of vaccines. And I personally didn't have a problem with it because my view of vaccines. I was like, good, thank you. Thank you for wanting to protect me from these potential infections that I might get if I get deployed. Thank you, military, for wanting to do that for me. I saw. I got the smallpox vaccine when I was in the military. I was very glad to get the smallpox vaccine. They don't give it anymore, I understand, which is setting up a potential terrible situation if that few frozen samples that are in both Russia and America ever get out. (laughs) But I was very glad to get it. I was ordered. I would have been court-martialed had I not do it. So it was coercive pressure for sure. But for me, I didn't need the coercive pressure because it was reasonable, made sense, and it was something I freely wanted to do. Now, in society, we do bring coercive pressure to bear all the time. We absolutely do. So we, uh, for instance, there are mandates. Your kids can't go to school without vaccines. You have to have at least the MMR. You know, measles, mumps, rubella. It, it, and, some, and every year, one out of what? Five million, one out of ten million children will die because of the vaccine? But how many others never had? And the polio. Don't forget the polio. I mean, does does anybody old enough to remember when there was no polio vaccine? Was that generation gone now? No. And you remember all the all the people that had permanent disabilities and because of polio. Are we thankful for polio vaccine? But there's some people who won't, don't want to take it, and there's some people that can have a reaction to it. So society does these things, and the overall, you have to risk-benefit ratio. And is polio vaccine evil because some people are harmed by it? I don't think so. I think it's actually a very good thing. Polio, the disease, you could say, because I think polio, the viruses, I actually think polio viruses were constructed by an evil one for evil purposes. Yes. So the doctor told me it was the unselfish thing to do. Okay. And? That person needed to weigh it out, come to their own conclusion, and if they chose to do it, then why are they saying they were coerced rather than saying that, you know what, I was persuaded by evidence that that's correct. I'm willing to sacrifice myself to protect others and not be a a vector to carry disease to other people. Sad I got sick, but you know what, I was still willing to do it to help other people. Why are we now interpreting this because you got sick? If you hadn't gotten sick, see, this is outcome-based revisionist thinking. If you hadn't gotten sick, if you, if you would have just had the vaccine and gone on and got well and two or three people at work got the flu, but you didn't, you would say, boy, I'm so glad I got that vaccine. So it, you have to make the decision based on the time with the motive it, in, intended, not with now we have uh, outcomes we go back and reevaluate the decision and say, that oh, was a bad decision. Unless you knew it was a bad decision at the time and you did it anyway. If you didn't want to do it and you weren't persuaded by the evidence and was going against what you thought was best for your life, then you need to evaluate your decision-making. Why did I do it? But if you were persuaded at that time, this was a good thing, okay, that makes sense to me, I'll do it, then, you know, it was a free will decision. It wasn't coerced. But yes, employers can coerce and we can coerce. Yes, we can be in those situations. That's true. Is it then evil to do that type of coercion? Well, you can't work here? Well, no, because ultimately you still have freedom. There's a price to pay. You could say, no, I'm going to leave my job. I, I really feel strong about this. And, and you say, well, that's not fair. Well, we do this all the time. There are, there are Adventists, I know, for instance, who employers say you have to work on Sabbath. If you don't work on Sabbath, you can't have this job. And many Adventists say, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not going to work. I'm going to leave the job. They don't say, well, I was coerced. I had to work on Sabbath. I had to. Had to. See, it's just that with a vaccine, it doesn't reach that level of certainty for a person that maybe the Sabbath does for some people. But it still all comes down to the point, we are all, in, no matter where we find ourselves in life, faced with choices. People can pressure us and coerce us and threaten us, there's no question. At the end of the day, though, we still have to decide, what are we going to do in governance of ourselves? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the plain of Dura were being coerced. Baal we're going to Fiery Furnace. And they had a responsibility to make decision in governance of themselves, what they knew was right to do. How things turned out was not up to them. They couldn't control the future. They couldn't. They didn't know how it would, would turn out. That that is up to God. So we make the decisions that we understand are, are best, most reasonable in governance of ourselves, and we trust God with how it's going to turn out. That is the just shall live by faith. The just are those who just or right do what's right in governance of self and trust God with how it turns out because we don't know the future. And. Unfortunately, I, I wish I could say I would have done what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego does. I really hope I would have. I'm not sure that I would have. I might have, because I'm always processing and I'm thinking, oh, you know, uh, fiery furnaces are not on the game plan here, but bowing to idols, that's not working either. I know, hey guys, when the music plays, it's tire shoes. <laughs> well, hey, the Lord knows our heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on, I can't, I can't, it's not my fault. They think I'm bowing. I know I'm not. Lord knows I'm not. I'm, my conscience is clear. I'm just tying my shoe. It's not my fault. Well, if you trust that's how I think. Well, if you trust the Holy Spirit, sometimes He does help you make the right decision. That's correct. That's a beautiful point. As you have that walking daily relation with Jesus Christ and the Spirit, and when you find yourself in those moments, the Holy Spirit will often give you insight, wisdom, and a conviction of what decision is best for you in that. But it's not a, it's, the Holy Spirit doesn't lead us against evidence and truth, I can tell you that. It does not. Yes? So it is alcohol legal? Is alcohol evil? Alcohol is a substance. It can be used evil, but alcohol is simply a substance, and in fact, it can be used as a medicinal. If somebody overdoses in a suicide attempt by drinking um, antifreeze, do you know the treatment for that? Make them drunk. Get them drunk. Because what happens when you have enough ethanol in your system, if you don't do this, what will happen is that, that antifreeze will destroy the kidneys they'll end up in renal failure and permanent dialysis. If you get them intoxicated there for a period of what, 12, 24, 36 hours, you keep them drunk, um, what happens is the ethanol protects the kidneys and clears the stuff out without destroying the kidneys. So is it evil to use alcohol in that circumstance? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Alcohol is just a substance. It can be used for evil. It doesn't have to be. So it's a good point that goes against traditional things. Yeah, there are many people, again, who just think, because alcohol, though, if you look at society, its preponderant use has a lot of very destructive consequences in society. Alcoholism, families destroyed, uh, people killed in DUIs, and so forth and so on. There's so much pain and suffering that comes from it, it's easier for people to make the leap and make a direct causal link between. The substance is doing this, but it's not the substance itself, it's how the substance is being used. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. That you are an amazing God of truth and love who has designed and constructed your universe to operate in harmony with you, yet we do find ourselves on a planet that has been invaded and infected by an antagonistic principle that is messing with your design. Not only physiologically, all nature groans under the weight, according to Romans 8, but yet your design and how we think, and how we understand, and how we love others, And so we ask that your spirit will come and restore your design in our minds that we can have discernment and wisdom and healthy decision-making and in a greater capacity to love you and others. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.